Hey everyone, welcome back for chapter 10 of our General Psych 1A lecture series podcast. I'm your instructor, Brittany Rattiani, and today we're going to cover the first part of sexuality and gender. So just to give you a heads up, there are pictures of naked people in your textbook. They are not real people, they're just little animations, but there are naked people in your book. And we're going to be talking about the birds and the bees today. Before we do that, let's take a mindful moment to gather ourselves and prepare. Take a moment to find a comfortable position or posture, or if you're actively doing something, let your focus safely shift away from what you're doing to focus on the physical space that you take up in this universe. Take a deep cleansing breath in through your nose. Hold for a few seconds before you exhale slowly through your mouth. Then send your awareness down to your feet. This is a familiar practice for us now, so you know what to do. Maybe give your toes a wiggle or push your feet down into the earth, acknowledging that this little bit of space on this rock we call planet Earth is for you. It's a space that you occupy. You're going to send that awareness now up through your legs, past your knees, to your hips. Noticing what the sensation around your hips feels like at the moment, if you're sitting, what that's like, if you're driving, what that's like, if you're walking, what that's like. Just noticing and having gratitude for that femoral artery that runs through your hips. It's your blood supply for your legs. And sending that awareness now up through your spine If it's safe and appropriate to do so, you may elongate your spine a bit, sit up a little bit straighter. You may give your spine a little wiggle. You may rub it on the back of a chair if you're sitting in one or on the ground. Acknowledging this backbone is the framework for most of our body. And letting our awareness now nestle around our heart. Noticing if our heart is beating slowly or quickly. And placing one hand on our heart and one on our stomach, taking two deep cleansing breaths here. In through your nose, hold for a few seconds before you release slowly through your mouth. And one more time, inhale through the nose, hold for a few seconds, and exhale slowly through your mouth. Right, here we go with chapter 10, sexuality and gender. Now, it's important to note before we jump in that language is always changing. It's always evolving. And language is specific to whichever culture or subcultures that we, we may be part of. So the language that's used to describe sexuality and gender is one that is being frequently and constantly updated. And if you're in certain subgroups of sexuality and gender identities, then you may use different language than what's presented here. What's presented in this lecture is 
aims to be more objective or more kind of scientific in nature. So there may be some slang terms or some colloquialisms that you're familiar with that you don't hear today, and that's okay. If you want to share those with me or you feel like there's some things in here that could be updated according to what you know, send me an email through Canvas and we will look into that together. So we're going to start off by looking at the genderbred person. You're probably familiar with little gingerbread men cookies, um, whether you saw them in the Shrek movies or you make gingerbread cookies at Christmas time. It's basically just an outline of a person in gingerbread cookie dough. So we're using that general outline of a person that has no defining sex characteristics whatsoever to identify what some of these different terms are. Let's walk through them really quickly and we will get to jump into more of them. There's different concepts within sexuality and gender, and it's important to make sure we know what they are because they are very different and how we label ourselves and each other is really important. That's one of the things that people get stuck on. Well, why do the labels matter so much? Why can't we just love each other and get on with it? That's a really nice thought, but that's not how the human brain works. We've learned that through cognitive psychology and through the way that we learn. Our brain likes to group things together. That's how it best understands things is when we are able to group them together. It's naturally inclined to assign labels to things and then categorize them, to group them together into concepts. So if our brain is naturally going to do this, then we should take efforts to do it well. Historically, we have not. We have used derogatory language. We have used language that puts people down or shames them. So that is where a lot of this lecture is focused, is providing scientifically accurate terms that have been accepted by different subcultures within different sexuality and gender, gender identity groups. That's the way the brain works. Let's do it well. First up is identity. When we're talking about identity, this is the way you think about yourself. So this is where gender stems from. Gender is the way you think about yourself. We typically do so in either stereotypically masculine or stereotypically feminine terms. And gender identity exists on a scale, a scale of, we could call it womanness and a scale of manness. So when you think of what a man is, think of it aesthetically on the outside for now. Uh, men typically wear shorts or pants. They typically wear uh, shoes of some sort. Um, but people maybe think when they picture a man, when they have that mental image, maybe they first think of someone in a business suit. Maybe they first think of a lumberjack, kind of that mountain man, scruffy kind of guy. Uh, when we think of woman, when we pull up that mental image, oftentimes it's a female body that has longer hair. They maybe dress in kind of flowy, gentle or soft fabrics. Maybe there's flowers on their clothing. They may wear skirts or dresses, and they may wear uh, shoes that aren't very practical, but look aesthetically pleasing, uh, maybe increase the woman's appearance of height or increase her physical height, talking about high heels here. These are stereotypes, right? These are the images that we have been led to believe define womanness and define manness in a visual spectrum. For some of us, gender identity 
doesn't really fall neatly into either of those spectrums. Don't really dress like a man. You don't really dress like a woman. You dress kind of somewhere in the middle. And that is perfectly okay. All of our identities exist on a spectrum. And we can exist anywhere on that spectrum. We can change where we are on that spectrum every hour of the day if we want to. So identity is the way we think about ourselves. Another key concept is attraction. This is who you are sexually attracted to. It could also be who you are romantically attracted to. These are not the same thing. We'll get more into that in a little bit. When we're talking about sex, we are not talking about intercourse or the activity of having sex. We are talking about the biological reproductive organs that you were born with. Most people were born with a clear set of either male genitalia and reproductive organs or female genitalia and reproductive organs. Some folks were not, and we will get more into that later on as well. So that's identity, how you think about yourself, attraction, who you are drawn to or who you want to be with, and there's different capacities for that. Sex is the biological organs that you were given at birth. And expression is the way we show how we feel about that. So we typically talk about expression in terms of our identity, our gender identity, how we express that. Um, Let's get deeper into some of these concepts so that we can have better language to describe what we're thinking about and what we're trying to say. Let's jump into the physical aspects of sexuality. This is, again, your biological sex the reproductive organs that you were assigned at birth. If you were born and the doctor said, it's a girl. They said that not because they asked you if you feel like a girl. They looked at your little naked baby body and they said, there is not a penis there. There is a clitoris there. This is a female. So they held you up and with great pride said, you are a girl. It's a girl. Now, if you were a boy, then they would have looked at your little naked baby body and noticed, ah, there is a little penis there. It's a boy. What they're really looking at is your biological sex. In that moment, when they say it's a boy or girl, they have given gender identity labels to your sex. They have married those two things together. And the more we know and the more we understand ourselves and humanity at large, we recognize that those things don't necessarily have to go together. So what happens then for people who do not have clearly defined sexual reproductive organs when they are born? It's not terribly common that this happens, but it does happen. And the term we use for that is intersex, where it's not clear if there's a penis or a clitoris. And it's one of those confusing moments for doctors of, well, do we just let the child grow up and kind of let this play out and see which organs develop? Or do we need to just make a decision here and now about what this child's gender identity is going to be based on what we can ascertain from their biological sex? Well, there's a really fascinating case study that's linked in with this. It is known as the Bruce-Brenda study. So in Canada in the 80s, there were a set of male twins that were born. They both had male genitalia at birth. 
and the parents wanted to have the children circumcised. So they had the procedure set up. The first one went great. The second one, a mistake was made. And the doctors had to decide, what do we do? We took off too much of the penis, so we're not really sure if this is going to be a fully functioning penis later in life. And our options are to just kind of let it go, or we can do a corrective surgery, so to speak, and do some hormone therapy, and you can raise this child as a girl. The parents opted to raise Bruce as a girl, so they changed his name to Brenda. And Brenda grew up always knowing that she was different. There was something that was just off about her. She never felt like one of the girls. She would always go play with the boys, and she felt more drawn to being around boys and was always kind of characterized as a tomboy, a girl who dresses more like a boy, maybe plays more kind of aggressive type of games, isn't afraid to get dirty, that stereotype. Well, as time went on, Bruce now Brenda, developed some pretty significant depression. And when Brenda was an adult, had a surgery to become male, to kind of go back to how it was before. But they never really could because the sex organs had been damaged. So now, Bruce, who became Brenda, was identifying as David, as a male. And David even got married, had children, but there was always something wrong. That depression never went away. And unfortunately, the story does not have a happy ending. Ultimately, David Ren did die by suicide. The depression that they experienced from the intensity of the identity questioning, the choices that were made for them around their identity... It was something that could not be overcome. This is part of the reason why it's so important for us to try. Even though these conversations can be hard for us sometimes or we're really worried about messing up, it's better to mess up along the way and make amends and do better next time than to avoid it completely. And this is why it's also so important for us to acknowledge there may be people out there who identify or feel differently about themselves than I do. And that's okay. They can go live their life. I can go live my life. We can accept each other. And I'm going to do my best to learn the language of this part of our lives so that I can be a friend. I can be an ally in this. So to take a step back and review some of our terms, we're talking currently about biological sex the organs that you were assigned at birth, how the doctor looked at you and saw a clitoris and said, it's a girl, you're a female, or saw a penis and said, it's a boy, you're a male, or saw some ambiguous or not very clear organs and had to have some further difficult conversations with the parents about what this means and what happens next. So let's talk about those physical characteristics for a second. We have two different types of sex characteristics, primary and secondary. The primary ones are the reproductive organs. It's the one the doctor looked at and said, this defines who you are. It's a girl. It's a boy. So they saw your clitoris or they saw your penis and made that distinction, that decision for you. Now, secondary sex characteristics don't typically come about until puberty. 
So that glorious 12 to 13 years old, sometimes 11 or 10, where all of a sudden you have chest hair or armpit hair or pubic hair or body odor and all of these things that kind of make you go, what is happening to my body? Those are secondary sex characteristics. The sexual organs and traits that develop at puberty and are indirectly involved in human reproduction. How the heck is armpit hair and chest hair involved in human reproduction? It signals the opposite sex that you have reached sexual maturation. That is its function. So in the female body, the primary sex characteristics are the vagina, which is the tube that leads from the outside of the female's body to the opening of the womb, and the uterus, which is the womb. Also in the female primary sex characteristics, we have the ovaries, which, which are the female sex glands. And in males, we have the penis, which is the organ through males urinate and deliver sex cells or sperm. And the testes or testicles, which are the male sex glands. And those are in the scrotum, the external pouch that holds the testes. For males, the prostate gland that secretes most of the fluid that carries the sperm is also included in the primary sex characteristics. We do see a rather disturbing trend in which menarche, the onset of menstruation in females, is happening earlier and earlier in the female life cycle. So whereas we used to anticipate that females would start their menstrual cycle around 12, 13 years old, we're seeing 8 to 10-year-olds starting their menstrual cycle, which is significantly earlier than it used to be and is cause for concern. One of the suspected reasons why this is happening is environmental stress. Another cause for concern that could be at play here is the role of hormones in our food. Uh, especially in lower-income areas and lower-income countries where a lot more fast food is consumed, there's a lot more fat involved, that could be setting up young women to enter womanhood to start menarche earlier than they used to. Other secondary sex characteristics for females include widening of the hips to allow for childbirth, enlarged breasts after about two years after that growth spurt, so you know how girls in sixth grade are all of a sudden like massively taller than all the boys? About two years later is when we start to see the more full development of breasts and widening of the hips. And this is also because that's where the mammary glands become capable of producing milk for an infant when the menstrual cycle begins. So all of these things are connected. They all serve a purpose. I think in the midst of puberty, it feels just like torture and all these random things are happening to us, but they're all interconnected and there's a distinct reason for each of them. So let's talk about male secondary sex characteristics. This would be deepening of the voice, emergence of facial hair, chest hair, and pubic hair. Uh, the skin is a little more coarse in texture. These changes are also accompanied by a large increase in height that continues beyond the growth spurt of the female. So females tend to get taller faster, but it doesn't last long. We end up being the shorter ones in the long run. Usually. There's always exceptions. So the male growth spurt doesn't typically happen until two years after the female growth spurt does. But males do continue to gain height until their late teens, whereas females usually stop growing fairly early, honestly, kind of 14 or 15. Um, sometimes 16, we see that uh, growth plate closes off in females. 
So the voice box does change in both sexes during puberty, but for males, it's much more significant. And there are some changes for males to the primary sex characteristics. Uh, Typically around the onset of the secondary ones, the primary ones go through a shift, which is where uh, the onset of the production of sperm, this is called spermarchy. So females, onset of your period is menarchy. Males, onset of the development of sperm is spermarchy. Occurs usually around age 14, and the growth of the penis and testes also occurs, which eventually allows full sexual function and reproduction in the male system. So how does all of this happen? How does your body just magically know when it's supposed to start doing all of these things? Before you were born, there were two organs called gonads that form in the embryo. Those two sets of ducts or tubes also develop next to the gonads. They're called Wolfian ducts, which can become male sex organs, and Mullerian ducts, which can become female sex organs. So they're both there, and it's going to be a fight to the finish. At this point, the gonads are undifferentiated, neither fully male nor fully female. And the embryo could be either one. It can become either male or female. The deciding factor is controlled by chromosomes. If the chromosomes of the 23rd pair contain a Y chromosome, a gene on that Y chromosome causes the gonads to release testosterone, a male hormone or androgen. In females, it's estrogen. Testosterone causes the Wolfian ducts to develop into the male sex organs, while the Mullerian ducts deteriorate. On the other side of the coin, if the 23rd pair of chromosomes has two X chromosomes or two female chromosomes, the Y gene is absent, so no testosterone is released. The gonads will develop into estrogen-secreting ovaries. The Mullerian ducts become female sex organs, and the Wolfian ducts deteriorate. This brings us back to the concept of intersex. On rare occasions, an infant's born and the sex organs just are not very clear. They're ambiguous. Intersex means between the sexes, and it represents about 1.7% of the population. It's very rare to find a person who truly has both ovary and testicle material in their body. More so what tends to happen is the development of extra genitals, is, it's affected by either chromosomes or the presence of hormones associated with the development of another sex at a critical time in the development of the fetus in the womb. So rather than having two full sets, there's just kind of confusion all around. There was a little bit of androgen, there was some estrogen, and a little bit of both started to happen, but neither is like fully formed. So what is it like for people who are intersex? What's happening on the physiological level for them? Well, a few of the possible hormonal abnormalities include androgen insensitivity, where someone who is genetically male is resistant to the male hormone androgen, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. This is a severe genetic condition that leads to limited production of hormones by the adrenal glands and a hydrotestosterone deficiency leading to a lack of particular male hormone. In these cases, a female clitoris might look more like a penis, or a penis might be so small it resembles a clitoris. Many physicians, psychologists, and other experts now consider gender reassignment surgery performed on infants with intersex traits to be unnecessary. We learned that from Bruce, Brenda, 
David. Gender identity is not a biological concept. We have been talking exclusively about body parts and hormones affiliated with those body parts. Gender identity is something else entirely. They're not the same thing. So when a decision is made to uh, transition a gender without that person's knowledge or consent, we're doing significant harm. And as we learned with Bruce, Brenda, David, there can be very negative, very severe lifelong consequences, not only for a person to be able to function sexually later in life, but in their mental wellness. Now that we have a very clear understanding of what sex means and what sex is, let's go back to gender identity. This is represented by the icon of the brain on our gender-bred person because it's how we think about ourselves. So psychological aspects of our sexuality being our gender identity. There are four components that are said to make up gender. One is our gender identity, a person's sense of being male or female. Next is gender itself, the psychological aspects of being male or female. Gender roles, these are culture's expectations for male and female behavior and personality. So these vary by where you are. San Francisco is very much different than where my family lives in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Population, not San Francisco, I can tell you that. And the fourth characteristic is gender typing. This is acquiring gender role characteristics. So how do we acquire those gender role characteristics? How do we learn what it means to be male or female? Think about mirror neurons. We watch people and we copy what they do. Our brain is wired to do that. And especially in young children, because our brain also likes to categorize things and put them in groups together, young girls tend to look at young women or older women and copy what they do. Same thing for males. They tend to look at what other males do and copy them. This is more so why you see more little girls playing with dolls and playing house and being nurturing and acting out nurturing roles. It's not necessarily that they are genetically hardwired to do that in some way. It's more so because that's what they've learned through observation, through vicarious conditioning. And it's been reinforced. Little girls who pick up dolls, what happens? Mom and grandma and auntie, everyone comes running over and they say, oh, are you going to rock the baby to sleep? Are you going to burp the baby? Are you going to feed them? They reinforce that this is what you're supposed to do. This is how you dress. This is how you talk. This is when you don't talk. These are the things you're expected to do. And the craziest part of all of this is we don't even recognize it's happening. It's just kind of coming out of us at all times that we're unintentionally reinforcing some of these stereotypes and these gender roles. It's not necessarily a bad thing. But when we use that to kind of stifle people or to say, no, this is how you do it, that's when it becomes a problem. If we have little girls who love playing with dolls, who love doing the nurturing thing, who love playing house, go for it. Awesome. If you have little girls who also want to play in the mud and play tackle football, let them do it. 
that's not the time for us to say, oh, you know, that's not what ladies do. That's what I was told as a kid. That's not what ladies do or that's not what little girls do. I'm very grateful that for every person who said that to me, I had three other strong women in my life saying, yeah, go play in the mud. My best friend growing up had a giant pot-bellied pig that she rescued from a local fair. And we loved going and hanging out in the pig pen with the pig. And funny enough, we would play with our Barbies in the pig pen. Not just mud. There's a lot of other gross stuff in there too. And our parents were thrilled that we did that. And again, the same thing is true for young men, for little boys. If they start playing with Tonka trucks and playing in the dirt or showing interest in building Legos, that's reinforced. By what? What happens? Dad, uncle, grandpa, friends come over. Oh, buddy, let me play that with you. Also notice the difference in language. When we when people tend to swoop in and play with a little girl, it's sweetheart, honey, sweetie. Endearing terms, they can be very loving terms, but they're there's a little bit of minimizing in there. Whereas with little boys, it's buddy. Hey, pal. I don't know if anyone actually says, hey, pal. But like, hey, buddy, I hear that one all the time. Hey, bud, let's do this together. More so working together rather than, let me keep you just a little bit down by reminding you that you are small and fragile, honey, sweetheart. Be mindful of the language that we use with each other. So let's say boy expresses interest in Legos. All of the men in the area swoop in. Hey, buddy, let me do this with you. Reinforcing the idea that this is what men do. This is what people who look like you do. This is what our gender role does. When a boy wants to take a dance class or a girl wants to play football, ah, our feathers get a little ruffled and we have all sorts of follow-up questions. We typically say it's around safety. We don't want them to get bullied. We want to make sure they're going to be physically okay. But the core of it is that we have been taught for centuries, this is what females do. This is what males do. And we know from history that upsetting the status quo typically does not end well. The process of developing our gender identity, our sense of being male or female, is influenced by biological and environmental factors. This is nature versus nurture, or in this case, nature and nurture. So our genes, the way we were parented, the experiences we've had in life, all influence our gender identity. There's not really a clear answer as to which factor has the most weight to it, just like with the traditional nature versus nurture argument. Which one's more important? Both. Our sense of gender identity does not always match the bodies that we were assigned. And it does not always match the gender roles that we are expected to play. People who feel this way are typically termed transgender. People who are going past the gender roles. So the beginning of that word transgender, T-R-A-N-S, you've seen this in other places like the Transcontinental Railroad. That railroad went across the continent or the transatlantic uh, flight. That flight went across the Atlantic. So transgender, we're going across genders. Some noteworthy names in the media that you may have heard of transgender individuals include Caitlyn Jenner, Laverne Cox, and gay rights activist Chaz Bono. Transgender can look a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's just dressing 
Across genders, a person who is biologically male may wear skirts and more feminine clothing, um, identifying more female-like or more woman-like. Um, a person who is genetically female may dress in more stereotypically male ways. And there are places kind of in between, this non-binary place, where I don't really feel male or female, masculine or feminine. I'm just here. I'm just me. And there's not necessarily a word or a mental concept for that. Oftentimes, folks who feel that way may fall into the gender non-binary or gender non-conforming categories. So this thought process around, I feel like my body and my sense of identity don't match up. For some people, this is incredibly distressing. A key piece of your identity is missing, or it's not correct. It just feels like a puzzle piece that's put in the wrong spot. For some people, this experience is very distressing. It can lead to significant depression, anxiety. The term for when that gender questioning is the source of that distress is gender dysphoria. Now, many people have this curiosity, this questioning. It's a very normal aspect of our development, but the distress part isn't there. In fact, a lot of people have felt very strongly for a very long time. Many of the clients that I have worked with on the LGBTQIA spectrum tell me that they knew when they were five or seven years old that they were in the wrong body or that they were attracted to people of the same sex. But they didn't come out until much later in life. Why is that? Part of the problem is that we don't believe our kids when they tell us these things. We think, oh, it's just a phase. They'll grow out of it. Why? Why would they need to do that? Why would we expect them to grow out of it? So oftentimes this dysphoria or this distress piece is not present. The only stress that's really there is culture's lack of understanding and lack of acceptance around this truth that people feel and believe very strongly and don't have distress about. An interesting take on gender conditions is called Cuvade syndrome. And this is where a man whose partner is pregnant experiences a kind of sympathetic pregnancy. And this actually goes back to more indigenous cultures where when a woman was in childbirth, the man would basically mirror what the woman was doing, kind of simulating uh, having a birthing experience as well. You know, today when we think of birth, we think of the father if they're present, that they're kind of holding mom's hand, having their hand squeezed to death as mom is giving birth. But in other cultures, the father would actually be kind of writhing around and like screaming in pain, mirroring the experience that the birth mother was having. And there's actually been an increase in a different way of men in Western cultures exhibiting a new type of Cuvade syndrome. Uh, this oftentimes comes in the form of pregnancy weight or having more highly fluctuating emotions while their partner is pregnant. And there's this kind of confusion like, what is happening to me? Why am I so emotional and eating all the time? And it makes sense that my pregnant partner is gaining weight, but why am I gaining weight? Comes back down to Cuvette syndrome. There's several possible explanations. Some view it as a psychiatric disorder, perhaps out of jealousy of the attention given to the pregnant wife, but other people notice that involves some real biological changes. One study showed that men experiencing Cuvade syndrome actually started producing female hormones that were no normally associated with the production of milk. 
and it may be a way for some men to work through their feelings about impending fatherhood. When you say it that way, it sounds very scary, impending fatherhood. It could also be related to how emotionally sensitive men are, men are emotionally sensitive, or prone to personal distress. Whatever the causes may be, Cuvade syndrome remains a fascinating condition, and it seems to defy ordinary gender roles. There are many modern theorists who focus on learning and cognitive processes for the development of gender identity and behavior. Social learning theorists believe that gender identity is formed through reinforcement of appropriate gender behavior, as well as imitation of gender models. This is what we were looking at earlier with little girls and little boys looking up to older individuals, typically adults of the same sex, and learning the gender expectations based off of what those people were doing. Little girls looking up to older females, seeing that women stay home, they take care of the home, they're nurturing and caring. Little boys looking up to older males, seeing that men are typically out of the house, they're hard workers, they may engage in these logical kind of games and activities, they're typically more active, and they can also be more aggressive in the way that they behave. Now, gender schema theory believes that gender identity is a mental schema. Remember, those are the blueprints we have in our brain. So gender identity is a mental blueprint, a schema that develops gradually and is influenced by the growth of the brain and organization of observed male or female behaviors around that schema. So we have a mental framework for our gender roles already, and the things we see out in the world reinforce that, rather than us being like a blank slate. So social learning theory says that we're a blank slate, we learn from observation, and gender schema theory says we have a map already, and the things we see simply reinforce what's on the map. Some female stereotypes that exist are that women or females are illogical, they are changeable, emotional, sensitive, naturally nurturing, patient, and that they're fairly useless when it comes to understanding machines. So how are some of these positive? Being changeable, that could be a positive thing. This can be reframed as being flexible, able to go with the flow. Being emotional. This could be positive. Emotions are good. We have them for a reason. We're supposed to have them and express them and understand them. Same thing with sensitivity. That word is typically used as a negative, that you're too sensitive. You're not able to hang in there. You're not tough enough. I would argue that people who are sensitive are also some of the toughest people that are around. Sensitivity can be a superhero strength. And if you're curious about that, there is a great book series called The Highly Sensitive Person, and it really gets into depth about what sensitivity actually is. It's not being emotionally reactive. So what are some of the negative things about being changeable or assuming that females are changeable? That we could change our mind at any moment or at the drop of a hat. Same thing with being emotional, that our emotions are out of control or that we're run by our emotions. And that being sensitive means we're weak. Let's look at some male stereotypes. Aggressive, logical, decisive, unemotional, insensitive, non-nurturing, impatient, and mechanically talented. 
At a first glance, the list of male stereotypes is, it seems more overtly negative than the list of female stereotypes. This could also be my own bias as a cisgender woman. Cisgender meaning that I feel like my insides and my outsides match, my body and my gender identity match up, they are congruent. So this could be my own bias coming in here. Uh, But let's look at some of these male stereotypes and see which ones could be positive or negative. Being logical, that is a typically positive stereotype. You know, being logical means that you would be good at certain jobs that could pay really well. You might be really great in a crisis because you're going to just get us through it. Being decisive could be seen as the same way. We need someone to just make decisions. Have you ever been stuck in a trap where no one can decide what to eat for dinner? It's so nice when someone just says, we're getting tacos. So being decisive can be good. But these words like unemotional, insensitive, and non-nurturing, I think those are male stereotypes that exist. And when we see them in sequence like this on a list, it paints a fairly negative picture of the males at large. And being mechanically talented. Oh, okay, so you're good at solving problems and fixing machines, but you're basically a robot is kind of what this list is alluding to. And that is a long-standing male stereotype that men are not supposed to be emotional, that they are supposed to be fixers and problem solvers and to just bring home the bacon. And this is another area where we are seeing a shift. It is a slow moving one, but it is happening where men are given more permission to have emotions, given more permission to cry or to be happy or to just be content. You don't have to be stoic or angry. So each of these, the female stereotypes and the male stereotypes, have positive and negative characteristics to them. Continuing on in gender stereotyping, this term androgyny, it's a characteristic of people whose personalities reflect the characteristics of both males and females regardless of gender. It allows for flexibility in everyday behavior and career choices. These are folks who may identify as gender non-conforming or gender non-binary. Those may be terms you hear more often instead of androgyny. There's a really fantastic actress. Her name is Tilda Swinton, and she has had a lifelong interest in the concept of androgyny and is typically androgynous in appearance, meaning she does not dress in any gender obvious type of way. She's somewhat neutral. An interesting note on the concept of androgyny is that it's not new. Sometimes we assume that there's all this new terminology and all of these new concepts as we're trying to understand people who are outside of typical gender identities and roles. Androgyny has been around for centuries. In fact, in many indigenous cultures, there's not only two genders. There's three or more. And most of them don't really have words that describe them. There's just kind of an unspoken mental construct around it. When we compare the rates of depression around gender stereotyping, there's some initially shocking results, and they make more sense when you really think about it. So there's an image of this in our slides and on page 401 of your text. So the degree of depression compared with negative life events. We're looking at three categories, masculine people, 
feminine people and androgynous people. Now, people who have report experiencing few negative life events, of them, females report the highest degree of depression. So few negative life events, higher rate of depression in females. It's a little bit lower for people who identify as androgynous, and it's a little bit lower than that for people who identify as masculine. Now, when you look at many negative life events, it becomes much more clear. People who identify as feminine or as females have a much higher degree of depression when they experience many negative life events. People who are masculine experience a significantly higher degree of depression. But what barely changes is the degree of depression experienced by androgynous people. Why might that be? Existing outside of the gender conformity and the gender stereotypes allows for much more flexibility. It allows for flexibility not only in practical terms in the workplace and in what clothing you buy and that type of thing, but it allows for a lot more mental and emotional flexibility. This is why we see that the rates of depression for people who identify as androgynous are relatively the same between experiencing few or many negative life events. We've been able to capture the environmental differences that influence our gender identity and expression, but what about those biological differences? Are female brains actually any different than male brains? And the truth is, kind of. In female brains, we do see an advantage in verbal skills and emotional expression, that females tend to be better at a relating style of emotional expression. So this is where you might see females that like to gather together and talk about how they're feeling. Well, that's what they're kind of biologically set up to do with the advantage in verbal skills and their ability to more easily relate to one another. And this is where things get a little sticky in heterosexual relationships with women who want to talk about their feelings and their day and process things in a very verbal capacity and are looking for a relational response. This is where the differences come in. In male brains, the advantage is in math and spatial skills, and the emotional expression style is more like reporting. So this is where you have a heterosexual couple. The female wants to process and really go through things, have an experience of empathy, and the male partner is going to tell you how their day was, and that's the end of it. There doesn't really need to be anything else. So it can be confusing. Like, why do we still need to talk about this? I already told you how this was. Why are you still telling me about your day? You already reported on how it was. Why do we have to keep beating a dead horse, so to speak? So there are differences in the structure of the male versus female brain. The verbal skills advantage is a slight structural difference in females, and the mathematical and spatial reasoning skills are a slight difference in structure in the male brain. Early explanations of these differences in cognitive functioning involved physical differences in the way each sex used the two hemispheres of the brain, as well as hormonal differences. Other research, however, strongly suggests that psychological and social issues may be more responsible for these differences because these differences have become less and less obvious, especially as we culturally and as a society have been more accepting of 
non-binary identity, androgynous identities, etc. Male and females are socially taught to interact differently and express their emotions differently. So research suggests that when men talk to each other, they tend to talk about current events, sports, and other events. That's that reporting style of communication. And it seems to involve switching topics frequently. And there is a sense of more domination, trying to dominate the conversation with certain members of the group. Whereas in contrast, the relating style of communication that females tend to demonstrate more and have an advantage in is all about revealing private lives, showing concern and sympathy and empathy. Uh, Women tend to interrupt each other less often and let everyone participate in the conversation. And again, these structural differences are present, although the behavioral result of these differences is becoming less apparent as our culture changes around the concept of gender and gender identity. So just because you have a female body and thus a female brain does not innately mean that you are a great communicator and use a relational style. And just because you have a male body and a male brain does not necessarily mean that you are amazing at math and spatial reasoning or that you use a reporting style of communicating. Students, that brings us to the end of part one for chapter 10. In part two, we will look at the sex response cycle and what all goes into attraction.